Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. What follows is an interview with Glenn Turman, one of the first interviews we're releasing in 2021. And you know what? I'm just going to call it. Might be the best one we do all year. It's not to say there aren't going to be a lot more great ones. At least that's our plan. It's just that Glenn Turman is that good. He's a legendary actor who's lived an extraordinary life. His first big role was at 12 years old in the original Broadway production of A Raisin in the Sun. He performed alongside Sidney Poitier, Ruby Dee, and Louis Gossett Jr. In 1975, he starred in the hugely influential film Cooley High, a classic if you haven't seen it. In 1978, he married Aretha Franklin. Aretha Franklin. I could go on. He played Mayor Clarence Royce on The Wire, Dr. Senator on the most recent season of Fargo, and now he's in the new film version of Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, which is streaming on Netflix. Ma Rainey's Black Bottom is an adaptation of the August Wilson play of the same name. It focuses on the blues singer Ma Rainey, played by Viola Davis, her piano player Toledo, played by Terman, and Levy Green, her saxophone player, played by the late Chadwick Boseman, in his final role. The story centers on a fateful recording session of Mother of the Blues by Ma Rainey in 1927 Chicago. Before we get into our interview with Glenn, let's listen to a clip. In this scene, the band is arguing over which version of Ma Rainey's Black Bottom to play as they wait for Ma to show up. And Toledo, Glenn's character, has just about had it with Levy's attitude and wants everyone to take the job more seriously. It ain't just me, fool. I said everybody. What you think? I'm going to solve the colored man's problem all by myself? I said we. You understand that? We. That's every living colored man in the world got to do his share, got to do his part. I ain't talking about what I'm going to do. Oh, you going to do all. Oh, color, slow dress. Anybody else? I'm talking about what all of us going to do huh, together. That's what I'm talking about. Why don't you just say that then? Glenn Terman, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. When you're doing August Wilson, do you have to do you have to modulate what you're doing to match the language? The language is so extraordinary. Well, yeah, the language is 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 extraordinary. And, you know, you want to be true to it. You want to be true to the words, you know, almost right down to the to the periods and the commas, you know. But if you've had any vocal training this is where it comes in handy knowing breaths and and pauses and so on and so forth so so yeah all, August makes you use all of your all of your technical skills can you give me an example like what's a line where well just what you, you just are... heard what you I'm not, what you're gonna do what I'm gonna do uh, talking about everybody what everybody's gonna do that whole soliloquy was a breath exercise, you know, where you take the pause, how that pause comes up. So it's it's almost like a, a music, playing a musical instrument, you know. You've been acting since you were 12 years old, but when you got your first part, which was in the original production of A Raisin in the Sun, it wasn't because you were a kid who aspired to be an actor. How did you end up going to the audition? 
Well, it was because of, of the, the uh, friendship between my mother, who was a single parent, uh, she and I living in the West Village in the 50s, and she being a friend with Lorraine Hansberry, who was, uh, of course, another black woman living in the same uh, neighborhood. And so a, a, a friendship developed between those two. And it just so happened that Miss Hansberry had written this play and that there was a part for a little boy, my mother said. And she said that uh, Miss Hansberry wanted to know if you'd be interested in trying out for the part, auditioning. I'd, and I had no intention of being uh, in a play. So my first question was, well, I'll, I'll do it if it doesn't interfere with with my baseball game on Saturday, would it interfere with the game? And, uh, and my mother said, if you get this, it could very well interfere with your baseball game on Saturday. <laughs> so, <laughs> it'll interfere with two baseball games on Sundays. <laughs> so uh, at any rate, I auditioned and I didn't know what those other kids sitting in the hall waiting were sitting there for, waiting for because I had read the play and I knew there was a role for just one uh, little boy in it. And uh, my understanding was that that was me. So what were these other guys doing sitting out here waiting for, you know? So it was a good thing I didn't know what an audition was because I might've gotten nervous if I knew that we were all competing for the same role. Was your mom like a super hip lady? Yeah, she was a super hip lady. Yeah, She had super hip friends, you know? James Baldwin, Lorraine Hansberry, you know, Jack Klugman, Red Summers, uh, all these people were her friends in the, in the neighborhood of, of the, the village where I grew up. Did your mom work? She uh, was a post office worker, actually. I remember helping her try to pass the test, remembering all the zip codes of Manhattan and uh, having to uh, pass that test. But that came afterwards. She, you know, was a waitress at sometimes uh, at some some of the restaurants that you may know about in the village back in the day. You know, any kind of jobs that could keep us in our humble apartment over on West Tenth Street. You know, so she did many different jobs, but she died work or working in the post office, which was her working in the post office. You you had a sense of stability. You know, I was able to leave the play. Uh, on Broadway, Raisin, which was bringing in a steady income, a steady check, which was a good check, and um, that kept us afloat until she was able to to get on her feet with what she was aspiring to do, and then I left the play because I wasn't interested in following that path of a of a performer. You know, I was interested in other things. You know, and uh, as a uh, a kid growing up in Manhattan. You know, I was interested in, like I said, ball games, and I was interested in certain degrees of thuggery. (laughs) So, but I kept getting these roles. After, of course, I did Raisin, you know, I became the go-to black kid, you know, whenever there was a part that needed a a child of color. And uh, so I ended up doing a a lot of different things, you know, working with David Susskind, who was a prolific producer of the time. Uh, a lot of the television was live television uh, and, you know, Playhouse 90 and stuff like that. So I, you know, I ended up working with James Kahn and Robert Redford in a piece called Black Monday that was uh, 
about uh, integrating the schools. And believe it or not, Redford and Kahn were bad guys, you know. They were good old redneck boys trying to keep us from integrating the schools, you know. And I recently ran into James Kahn and was able to bring mention that to him. And we were on a plane coming back from someplace uh, not too long ago. And uh, we had never met. And I introduced myself and said, do you remember that David Susskind piece that we did called Black Monday? And it came to him right away. And he was, whoa, oh my God, yes, I remember that, you know. And so we walked down memory lane on that. It was a lot of fun. I mean, it occurred to me that given what a phenomenon A Raisin in the Sun was almost immediately, you know, was nominated for a number of Tonys and, and so on and so forth, right. you know, was the first African-American woman to have a play produced on Broadway. Right. And Lorraine Hansberry immediately became famous. She was still in her 20s, I think. Yeah. It must have been crazy to be a 12-year-old and like uh you know I don't I don't know who was stopping by backstage for some reason oh, in my mind yeah, yeah. yeah it's like Don Newcomb or something like that yeah, but yeah. that must have been bananas It was crazy you know it, it was wonderful and you know the thing is you know as a kid you're not really easily impressed but I, I was uh, I knew from the reaction of my my aunts and uncles and so on and so forth, the significance of who these people were, you know, we had their records in their house. We had Lena Horne's records we played, you know, in a, in the house, you know, Lena Horne would come by, Sarah Vaughn, you know, would come by, Sammy Davis Jr. Sammy Davis Jr. was one of my favorite cats because Sidney kept in his dressing room a, a 45, a Colt 45 in the holster that he would practice drawing on, you know, he would, you know, draw his quick draw. And um, Sammy Davis, come to find out, was the fastest quick draw in the country at that time. And he had demonstrated these skills on the Ed Sullivan show, a whole segment of him just doing all these fantastic tricks. Now, you know, back in the day when I was a kid, everybody wanted to be a cowboy. All kids wanted to be a cowboy, you know, and uh, I was no different. And so when Sammy would come by, he'd come into Sidney's dressing room. I'd come in, ease in, and just kind of sit on the floor in a corner, like a fly on the wall, as Sammy was teaching Sidney how to be a quick draw. And he'd do this, these remarkable tricks with this, with this 45 and this black holster. And Sidney would try to copy the whole thing. And Sammy would say, you know, say, no, man, not like that. Let me show you. Take, you know, and he'd go into his thing. <laughs> he'd, he'd pull the pistol out just as quick as lightning, you know, and Sammy and then Sidney would try it, you know. And then when they would leave, I'd still be in there and I'd try, I'd grab that, <laughs> that monstrous uh, pistol off the wall and wrap the whole holster ring around my little body and try not to drop the gun, you know, <laughs> trying to copy these guys. So, yeah, I, I had a chance to meet some of the most remarkable people in the business. Dorothy Dandridge, you know, who was just gorgeous beyond belief, even as a 12-year-old, you know, you can imagine what impression she made on me, you know. <laughs> I like the idea that Sammy Davis Jr. upgraded himself from triple threat to quadruple threat with an oh. actual threat, which is <laughs> quick draw. Right, right. No, that, he was like, if you fan. think it's just singing, dancing, and acting. Yeah, you're wrong. Right, exactly, exactly. He has <laughs> something else for you, man. 
But you didn't think that you wanted to be an actor. You went to, you went to PA, the famous performing arts high school in in New York. Mm-hmm. Yeah, quite by uh, on a fluke, because uh, luckily, thank God, a, a great teacher that I had in junior high school, Mr. Wilson, my shop teacher, woodshop teacher, the black teacher who knew that I had been on Broadway and a raisin in the sun, and he knew also that I was a chronic truant mostly uh, just skating by in my grades, just skating by enough to get promoted through the three years I was there. And when it came time to go to high school, he said, so determine what's, what, where are you going to high school? So I said, I'm going to the high school of aviation and design. I want to be an aviation engineer. And he laughed. I said, what's so funny? He said, Glenn, he says, you, you, you need to know math to become an, AG, an aviation engineer. And you haven't been in a math class in three years. You know, he said, <laughs> you've cut class in my class for for I don't know how many semesters. He says, "Uh, why don't you try out for the High School of Performing Arts? I said, I never heard of it. What do they do? He said, well, you know, you've been in, the only time you do come to school term is to be in a play, you know, one of the school plays. He says, so they do plays at school, at, at the High School of Performing Arts. I said, I'm not interested. I said, I'm going to be an aviation engineer. I'm great with making models doing model airplanes and model ships and so on and so forth. He says, okay, I'll tell you what. He says, take the test for aviation and take the audition for performing arts. Well, I did. And of course, I failed the test for aviation and I passed through the audition for performing arts and boom, there I was. And it was the first time I ever got an A in class, you know. So I, when I got to that school, I never played a day of hooky again, you know. I, I just loved it, graduated top of the class, you know. Did you know about famous people who had gone to your high school? Well, they give you a they give you a rundown of who those people were. You know, when it first started and where it was. You know, Eartha Kitt, I think, went to that school, and and some other famous people. You know, along the line. So yeah, they give you a whole history of it. It was it was quite a school because it was a small school, and what was great about it then, you know, like the movie Fame, uh, it was right smack dab in the middle of uh, the Great White Way, Broadway, you know, it was right on 46th and between the uh, 6th and 7th Avenue, you know, so it was smack dab in the middle of show, in the middle of show business. Did you work when you were a young man? Because the kind of work that you were getting after you were in Raisin in the Sun was the kind where they say, hey, I know a kid who looks like the thing and can do a decent job. Mm-hmm. You know, it's kid acting work. And that's yeah. very different from the work that you get when you're 19. Like the work that you get when you're 15 is very different from the work you get when you're 19. Was it an easy or a difficult transition? Let's put it this way. When I was, the 15 work came easily because, uh, you know, you were doing kids that were still in school age, you know, did a lot of, he was called Leroy Jones at the time, but uh, changed his name to Amari Baraka. And um, I did his early works uh, in off-Broadway houses and at the at the actor's studio for Lee Strasberg at that time. And I was, you know, 15 and doing the roles of 15-year-olds. But then I made the decision to become an actor after graduating. And I'm 19 now, and I'm 19, 20, and I'm married, and I've got a kid. And... I, as soon as I made that declaration that I wanted to be an actor and I'm 19 years old, I couldn't get arrested. You know, I could another role didn't come for a couple of years, you know. 
And so I was struggling being a struggling actor, running up to, to auditions and trying to feed a family, you know, getting fired from jobs because I would leave in the middle of the day to go for the sparse auditions that were there for black black performers of my age category. So it was it was very rough making that transition. The thing that saved me was that uh, I ended up at the Guthrie Theater uh, as a journeyman. So there I had a steady job for a year. My, I moved everybody to Minneapolis and worked with Sir Tyrone Guthrie uh, at the, and Douglas Campbell and uh, Lynn Cario, Michael Moriarty at the Guthrie Theater for, for a year, Adolf Caesar. That was the, the first time I had stability as an actor in that age group. I mean, I was thinking about when you're 12 years old and you're not the kind of kid actor, you know, I think there's this kind of kid actor who who's like a pageant contestant who can understand what the inflection of a line is supposed to be and mm-hmm. is cute and can, you know, no. kind of... Mm-hmm. shine it on. That's a kind of actor who will, I think, you know, they have a lot of growth to do to mm-hmm. become an adult professional actor. Mm-hmm. But the way you describe your kid acting mm-hmm. is because it was so accidental, mm-hmm. you know, it is like a, a lack of self-consciousness rather than extreme self-consciousness on stage. Mm-hmm. And in some ways that's like what you aspire to <laughs> as an adult professional actor. You're absolutely right. Matter of fact, someone someone asked me just the other day, "What am I a better actor now, or was I a better actor as a kid?" I said, "I was a better actor as a kid." You know, I, I said, "I'm just just getting to how to where I was as a kid." <laughs> you know, uh, in in my craft, and it it speaks to exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Sometimes I I feel like acting training is so embarrassing, and when you're doing acting training, you do so much embarrassing stuff. Mm-hmm. Not because you're doing a bad job, although you probably are, but like, you know, walking around the room like an elephant and going bee-ba-boo-boo or, yeah. or whatever it is, is like totally embarrassing. And, yeah. you know, once in a while you'll hear like, this is ridiculous, this is embarrassing. And there's this part of me that wonders, is it so ridiculous and embarrassing because it is just like total ego destruction mm-hmm. so that you can get to a point where you can invest yourself completely fully without artifice in something that is ridiculous, which is like pretending in front of other people. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. I, hey, let's just put it this way. I agree with you. I don't know if that's exactly what it is, or if that's right or wrong, but I, I agree. I understand exactly what you're talking about. You know, the other side of it is to call it certain freedom, freeing, freeing yourself up to be. And um, so you can call it that, it's, it sounds better. Uh, but you can also just say, <laughs> "Look at this ridiculous behavior." <laughs> but it's, it's just, it's just has just as much value, you know, as calling yourself a ridiculous human being doing all these booba booba things, you know, so that you can do it in front of people. It, it's, it's quite a craft. I've grown to just love it. I'm able to express myself through it, and hopefully, uh, people enjoy it. You know, you had a real career-changing and history of cinema-changing uh, role in Cooley High in the mid-70s. When you got that part, was it just another gig? Well, it was a little more than just another gig. I had worked with um, 
Michael Schultz, the director, we'd done a play on Broadway. So he and I had had a great working relationship and he brought this project to me and we were all kind of crafting it. He was crafting it with, with Eric Monte at the time. And uh, they were just telling stories. Eric was building his stories. And I was kind of in on some of that process. And I knew Eric as well, from, again, from the theater. So I was kind of invested early on in the process, which was I had never been before in the couple of three, four movies that I had done prior to Cooley High. So I felt a little more attached to that project. And when we did indeed go into production, you know, I, I was all in, you know, just absolutely all in. So it was a little different in, in that respect. It's an amazing movie. It's a really great movie if, if people haven't seen it. And I th it seems to me like one of the reasons that it is such an influential film, besides being good, and it's, you know, you can one of the reasons you can see it in, you know, direct the work of directors like Spike Lee and John Singleton mm -hmm. is that it has a little bit of melodrama to it, mm -hmm. but it combines that melodrama with a really like well-earned slice of life mm -hmm. breeziness. Mm -hmm. And that is like a, that's a very unusual tone. Most of the movie is kind of a wandering around buddies comedy. But at the same time, like it is, it is a very heavy movie. You must have been thinking about that as it was coming to be, as it was being developed. No, not not really. Uh, wasn't thinking about that at all. I, I knew that the slices of life that it was taking were so familiar to me. You know, the the hitchhiking, hiking on the back of buses to go to go from one place to to the other in the city. I mean, that's what we did in in Manhattan, in New York. Uh, doing all these times that I was, we were talking about earlier, jumping the tub, subway style to get to the train. That's how we lived, you know, knowing the good guys and the bad guys and the jocks in the neighborhood. You know, the, other, the one of the things that made it different was that everybody, uh, any movies that show you the bad guys, you know, the, the dealers or the, or the gangsters in the hood, is that they have no connection to the hood. Like there are separate people who don't know any, doesn't know anyone else in the neighborhood who isn't a gangster. Well, that's not true. You know, I, I knew all the gangsters in, in the neighborhood. You know, all the gangsters in the neighborhood knew me. And, uh, you know, we had Because you, like, played Little League with them when you were seven. Exa that's exactly. The thing and that's that people the truth. Don't yeah, because you play Little League with those same guys, you know. Yeah. Uh, so you have a, you know, you know everybody. You know their parents. You know their brothers and sisters. You know, you got to risk going to their house to pick up their sister that you're dating, you know, <laughs> you know, you know, when they, you got to get them back. You got to get the date back because you know who the brother is, you know, and that's what it exposed that there was a community that um, everyone had a place and everyone knew one another situation. So there was, you know, I, I liked when the tragedy happened at the end when for the fellow who inflicted the uh, fatal blow how innocent he looked um, the moment after he realized what he had done. He, he, all of a sudden to me, I never get this picture out of my head of how it looks like that, that cool hat that was such a gangster hat on him uh, all through the movie. All of a sudden it looked like he was a kid in his daddy's hat. You know, the hat was a little too big for him. 
you know, I thought that that was such a, a great metaphor for, you know, the loss of innocence. So, you know, the, the, the movie just struck home on so many levels and some of it was intentional, but a lot of it was just playing the truth of who the people are and what, what that life was about, you know. Yeah, I mean, I I grew up in a in a relatively tough neighborhood, and I feel like that one of the things that people don't always see from the outside is like there are the same the same breadth of humanity in that kind of neighborhood, and that people see it in each other. You know, like it can change, but you know, there's nerds, right. <laughs> there's nerds and and jocks and. Right. Yeah. You know, like I wasn't ever going to become a Norteño because the kids that lived on my block knew that I was a, I mean, for one thing, super white, but also, you know, they could tell I was a nerd. You know, they could mm -hmm. tell I was a, already on my way to becoming a public radio host. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, <laughs> and that <laughs> yeah, was like, yeah. that was like a normal part of the neighborhood. Like, it's not like it was so crazy that someone was on a different track. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? Mm-hmm. Right. Well, you know, it's like my, my thing. Some of the things that I wanted to do, which was, you know, be, be, a, be a, a tough guy and be with a, run with a tough crowd, they wouldn't let me do because <laughs> they knew I was, I was you know, going to be this actor guy. Oh, he's the actor. You know, you can't do this, Glenn. No, you can't come with, you know. I said, what are you talking about, you know? <laughs> but they, the neighborhood sort of helped guide me and, you know, kind of looked out for me in terms of, uh, of me being the kid who was supposed to do something else other than what was right. going, going down with the, with everybody else. You know what I'm saying? When you were in Cooley High, I can't imagine that it was life-changing in terms of the amount of money that you got paid because American mm -hmm. International yeah. Pictures... Yeah. Uh, I'm sure was not writing giant checks to relatively no. unknown actors to be in their movies. But I can imagine that it changed your life in terms of walking down the street. Yeah, to, to this day, you know, to this day. I can't believe that there's four generations of people who recognize me as Preach from Cooley High, you know. I've had young people come to me and say, my, my folks made me watch Cooley High. You're preach from Cooley High. My folks put that on for me. It was the coolest movie. So yeah, uh, I just finished filming in Chicago. And though the Cabrini Green community is no more, there are still remnants of people who lived in that community since it's been torn down, who are still in that area and who will come up to me and say, hey, 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 man, hey, preach, it's me. I was in the scene in uh, in Martha's, in Martha's uh, candy store, you know. Uh, I was in that scene. I did, I did the house party scene with you. So it's, it's, a, it's, it's an amazing, amazing feeling. So it's like I'm a, a folk hero kind of thing, you know. It's, I didn't become an international star, but I did become a folk hero in my community. We've got even more with Glenn Terman still to come. Stay with us. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Green Chef. Green Chef is a USDA-certified organic meal kit offering plans for every lifestyle, including paleo, plant-powered, keto, and balanced living. With their wide variety of high-quality, clean ingredients seasonally sourced for peak freshness, you can feel great about what you're eating and how it got to your table. Go to greenchef.com bullseye90 
and use code BULLSEYE90 to get $90 off your first month, including free shipping. Hi, I'm James, host of Minority Corner, which is a podcast that's all about intersectionality. It's hosted by James with a guest host every week. Discussing all sorts of wonderful issues, nerdy and political. Pop culture. Black, queer, feminism. Race, sexuality. News. You're going to learn your history, their self-empowerment, and it's told by what feels like your best friend. Why should someone listen to Minority Corner? Why not? Oh my God, free stuff. There's not free stuff. The listeners of Minority Corner will enjoy some necessary LOLs, but mainly a look at what's happening in our world through a colorful lens. People will get the perspective of marginalized communities. I feel heard. I feel seen. Like you said, you need to understand how to be more proactive in your community, and this is a great way to get started. Join us every Friday on Max Fun or wherever you get your podcast. Minority Minority Corner. Corner. Because Because together, together, we're the majority. LifeKit is rethinking New Year's resolutions. All this January, we're thinking about both really big and really small changes. If you're wanting to change up your life and start fresh, we've got you covered. If you're looking to just make your home a little nicer, we got you there too. Listen now to the LifeKit podcast from NPR. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Glenn Turman. Glenn is an actor who's been in the game for over half a century. He's been in movies like Cooley High and Gremlins, TV shows like A Different World, Fargo, and The Wire. He's starring in the new movie Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, opposite Viola Davis and the late Chadwick Boseman, in his last ever film role. You can watch the movie now on Netflix. Let's get back into it. So one of the remarkable things about your personal life is that your second wife was Aretha Franklin. Mm-hmm. And I guess the question that I have about that is basically just like, how do you ask Aretha Franklin out on a date? <laughs> you were like you were married to her in the in the late seventies and early eighties, which when right. she was definitely one hundred percent already Aretha Franklin. Right, so, right, right. like, what do you do? like? How does that work? Like, well, I know you were already you were already preached from Cooley High, but that's no Aretha Franklin. You know what I mean? That, no, that's no Aretha Franklin at all. But it is what made Aretha Franklin a Glenn Turman fan. So I go to with a friend. Ben Vereen, who was from high school performing arts, we were in the same class together. And he says, <laughs> yeah, I like, I'm impressed, Glenn, that we just, we had a whole conversation mm-hmm. about high school, the performing arts, and how wild yeah. it was, and, yeah. you know, whether do you knew that Eartha Kitt went there when you were there, yeah. and so on and so forth. You were literally yeah. in the same class as Ben Vereen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We were, we were buddies, and, and, and still are to this day. We're neighbors to this day. Uh, okay, so so you're you're kicking it with your man Ben Vereen. Yeah, so Ben and I are hanging, and he says, "What you doing tonight or tomorrow night or something?" And I said, "Nothing much. What's going on?" He says, "I got a concert. I'm going to go to uh, Amerson Theater tomorrow to perform for Jacqueline Onassis." So he says, "You want to come?" I said, "Sure, I'll go with you." So <laughs> we go down. To, yeah, all to, right. <laughs> if you hold my feet to the fire. Yeah, 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 yeah. What the hell? So we go down to the uh, to the theater, and he's in his dressing room. He's getting ready to do his thing, and I'm I start wandering around the backstage, you know, and give him his space and time to do get into his character and all that kind of stuff. And uh, I wandered through up these stairs, and halfway up the stairs, there's a kid at the top of the stairs, young fella, and he says, "Glenn Terman." I said, "Hello," you know. 
He says, oh, my God. He says, my mother just loves you. I said, so who's your mother, kid? He says, Aretha Franklin, come with me. I said, Aretha, whoa, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah. I'm, familiar, I'm familiar with her I'm work. Familiar, yeah, familiar. Sounds familiar. <laughs> so, so he takes me up to, the, to her dressing room, over to her dressing room, and she's standing in front of the mirror, you know, and the lights are on, you know, around the, the vanity mirror, you know, huge, beautiful, all these white flowers and uh, roses, you know, flowers around the room, and she's standing in this beautiful white gown, and she sees me in the mirror, the reflection, and she let out a little scream, you know, oh, you know, and, <laughs> and I was like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, so we introduced, and she, you know, I love Cooley High, and blah, 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 blah. So, we talk and she says, you know, she's moved, she just moved to California and that she wanted to become, uh, take some acting lessons. Well, I had been teaching acting for years at this point. And so I said, and I, and I, I gave her that information. I said, and if you want, I said, come down and check out a class, see if you want to join it, blah, 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 blah. I said, so I gave her the address and the time and, and all that kind of stuff. And she says, okay, I'll, I'll get down there, you know, and and so you know, you say, yeah, right, you know, sure, sure, she's gonna come to class. I, I, I believe that when I see it. Well, this particular evening, my whole class is over at the window looking downstairs, and there, there's all this this hubbub going on. I say, hey, everybody, everybody, get back to your seats. What's going on? Get back. Let's let's we got you know work to do. And they said a limousine just pulled up downstairs, and there's a lady getting out with a with a fur coat on. So lo and behold, it was Aretha. She had come to the class, come, and uh, you know, and the first thing I said to her was, "You're late," you know. And so, so, she, so, 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 so she says, so, "So she says, I'm sorry," you know. And uh, she she came and took one or two or three more classes, but by that time we were already dating, and and um, you know, the rest is history. I once asked this guy, I know Matt Besser, who's one of the founders of an uh, improv and sketch group called the Upright Citizens Brigade, mm -hmm. what it was like to have this one weird job that he had, which was at the very beginning of Kanye West's career, mm -hmm. or you know, not the very beginning of his career, but the very beginning of his fame. Mm -hmm. He was developing a show for HBO that was supposed to be kind of like Curb Your Enthusiasm, but a, mm -hmm. a slice of life of Kanye West rather than a slice of life of Larry David. Yeah. And... And Matt Besser's got hired to be his improv coach. And I was like, well, what is, what was it like? You know, because obviously, you know, Kanye West is a brilliant artist. I don't yeah. know whether he's a good improviser, comedy mm -hmm. improviser. And he was like, yeah, I mean, it was weird. <laughs> yeah. It's like funny to think that into your acting class walks literally the greatest singer in the world. Yeah, in the world. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> literally. You know, yeah, and the, and the class and was you have like, to be like, well, you're okay at this. Yeah. Um. <laughs> she was she was really good, but you know, she you know it wasn't her cup of tea for real. But we were already together when she got Blues Brothers, so right. I was her coach. You know, I was able. I had been working with her, and continued to work with her for for the production of Blues Brothers, which she did a, a very she's nice great job. Great in Blues Brothers. Yeah, she did a very nice job in Blues Brothers. So, uh, yeah, you know, the story I tell is that 
the question that you ask is a legitimate question. How do how do you you know how basically what you're saying is how how's a dude like you get hooked up with with Aretha Franklin? You know, <laughs> that's that's the question. Well, you know, anybody well, can fall I'm, in yeah, love. Yeah, I don't question yeah, that anybody yeah. can fall in love. It's mostly yeah. how do you get up the gumption. <laughs> <laughs> to ask the Queen of Soul out for dinner or whatever, you know what I mean? Right, right, right. Well, that's how that happened. But but the enormity of that dawned on me later. You know, the enormity, the, the gumption dawned on me later when, when when one night I was, you know, we we were, you know, it was late, like two or something in the morning, and I, I rolled over and she wasn't in the bed, and I kind of sat up and wondered where she was. And I kind of got up and I went down. I heard some something downstairs, and I went. And the closer I got, the more I realized it was music, and it had to have been her sitting at the Fender piano in the area where we kept that piano, and she was playing. And I kind of eased in, and there she was sitting at the piano playing. You know, she was in a house slippers and, uh, and a robe, and um, you know, a cigarette dangling off her mouth and just playing this music. And, you know, people don't really give her the credit for the wonderful, wonderful musician that she was, you know. Yeah, and, wonderful pianist uh, and organist. Oh, what a pianist. So I just sat down like in the doorway of, of the entrance of that room and just had this private concert given by, it dawned on me, God, I said, that's Aretha Franklin. <laughs> it's like you're hitting the palm, the palm of your hand against your forehead moment. You know, it's like, oh my God, that's that's Aretha Franklin. It's like I hear myself answer, "Yeah, dummy." You know, how did you pull that off? You know, it's like because it's, it's she, she was uh, uh, amazing. You know, it's really just a amazing, amazing, amazing person and musician. So I'm going to fast forward through some pretty extraordinary screen credits that you have. I mean, I was looking at your IMDb page. You're <laughs> like, oh, right. He was in Gremlins. <laughs> um, oh, look at that. He was on an episode of The New Twilight Zone that co-starred Danny Kaye. Danny Kaye, like, yeah. Yeah, all yeah. you have a, a, an extraordinary list of credits, but I'm going to fast forward to the greatest television show of all time, The Wire. The Wire, um, yeah. And my producer made fun of me for my goal of you know doing this radio show in an attempt to interview every actor who ever appeared on The Wire. But when you joined the show and you played Mayor Royce on the show, the sort of like the machine ish mayor of Baltimore. Yeah. Had you seen the show when you went into the audition? I think I'd watched an episode or so and I didn't, I didn't audition. It was a role that I, I got while I was doing a, a, another project. Uh, and it was offered to me through my, I had a wonderful manager at that time, Hilly Elkins. So I had heard more of the show than I had seen it. But I never tuned, really tuned into it and got into it until I, I ended up on it. And then I was, I was just hooked once I started reading and seeing the, the, the scripts that came down the pike. What can we expect the last week of my re-election campaign? Sir, I did what you asked. No more, no less. Amsterdam. Legalized drug zone? Well, he takes responsibility for that. Well, subpoenas all over town. That too. 
with a leak about the witness murder. I mean, that was his shop too, right? Hell yeah. And now, this last thing, transferring detectives off the case. What is that? What is that? Scuttling the investigation. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's awful. Jesus. Mr. Mayor, you asked me to slow that investigation down. Mm. Mm. Subtle, Irving. Mm. You hold a few facts for a few weeks. Mm. You put a report or two in a desk drawer. But the transferring of people off a case? Look, you told me you specifically wanted me to not... Irving, you may leave. <sighs> Mr. Mayor, that will be all. Commissioner. Were there people that you were thinking of? I worked for a minute in the uh, mayor's office of Willie Brown in San Francisco. And mm-hmm. Willie Brown was a much more kind of playful mm-hmm. figure uh, yeah. than Mayor Royce is. Yeah, no, But he had the same, had and has, you know, he's like in mm-hmm. his 80s now, had and yeah. has the same kind of like, you look in his eyes and you know he always has everything schemed out four steps ahead. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Right, right. Were you thinking of anybody like that? Well, I got a chance to meet, to meet the man who was, it was crafted after, which was Mayor Smoke, uh, Smoke uh, who was the mayor of Baltimore at that time, who, when we did the Amsterdam, uh, Amsterdam uh, thing about the, the legal drug uh, zone. You know, that was Mayor Smoke's idea. And as a matter of fact, he was even in one of the episodes uh, that addressed that whole thing. So I got a, a chance to see his temperament and his pace of things. And uh, it was interesting that he's in, on that whole take of Amsterdam. He said, I would have been a hero. He says, all I had to do was change the phrasing of what I was putting out there, what was being put out there. And he says, that would have made me a hero instead of me costing me my, another term. He says, all I had to do was phrase it as a, as a health zone instead of a drug zone, you know? Mm-hmm. He said, if I, if I could have phrased it, if I had phrased it as a place where you could go to get well, I would have been a big hero, you know? He's right. I want to return for a moment to Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. One of your co-stars in the film was Chadwick Boseman. Did you know that he was ill when you were making the movie? No one had a clue. No one had a clue. I think the only one who might have, who knew probably was Todd, Todd Black, a producer. But I don't think Denzel knew. Todd would have known because he had to handle the, uh, the insurance situations and all that kind of stuff. So he probably knew. But uh, none, of, none of the creative ends knew. What was it like to process that information and, and know that you didn't know? Well, it just, you know, you could feel the puzzle pieces starting to f- click into place, you know, on afterthought, you know. You say, oh, and that makes sense. Oh, that's why those people that were there. Oh, that's who those people really were. You know, I thought he was a bodyguard. And actually, he was a physical therapist, you know. Uh, oh, that's why, you know, such and such and such and such a thing happened, you know. And, um, and on the other hand, you'd say, wait a minute. How in the hell could he be that sick and be on, you know, uh, those powerful medicines and have the energy to do take after take after take of these strenuous scenes that we were doing? You know, who in the hell was this guy really? You know, maybe he was uh, the Black Panther, you know, uh, because he was doing superhuman, you know. So it just brought in a lot of questions, answered a lot of questions and, and, and posed a lot of other questions. 
You can tell me if this is too broad of a thought or too big of a thought, but there's a part of me that wonders if being that aware of one's expiration date mm -hmm. gives you permission to have that kind of freedom that you were talking about earlier as a performer. Uh, I, I don't know because I don't want to cut short the notion that he was as brilliant as he was regardless of what his condition was. Sure. You know what I'm saying? I don't want anyone to get the opinion that, oh, he only did this because of that. He was that crafted and that gifted an artist that I'd rather believe that he was going to turn in that performance anyway. Yeah, I believe that. Do you have ambitions for your career, particular ambitions for your career, now that you've done the first 60 years? <laughs> <laughs> well, my, my, I call this the back nine of my, of my career, you know, and the back nine is going rather well. Of course, I've still got pet projects that I've, uh, some I've pulled out of the trunk, you know, and I'd like to see done before I, you know, play the 19th hole. Uh, but then again, there's, 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 there's some new projects that have come to me to, to try to do, uh, or that I'd like to do as well. So yeah, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm still in the game. I'm still in the game. I still enjoy it, still love it, trying to get better at it. And um, I just keep on, keep on keeping on, you know? Well, Glenn Terman, I wish we had another four hours so we could get to your ABC After School special and your episode of Manimal. Um, <laughs> but I appreciate you taking this time. It was really nice to get to talk to you. Good to talk with you too, my brother. I appreciate it. And uh, look forward to, to rapping with you some more. Glenn Terman. What a guy. His movie Ma Rainey's Black Bottom is streaming right now on Netflix. Go check that out. He's got so many other wonderful performances as well. Watch him in Cooley High if you haven't seen that already. And I mean, I hate to be that guy at the party, but if you haven't watched The Wire, you should watch The Wire. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is created from the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California, where you might even be able to hear the rain coming down on the windows of my home office here. Uh, certainly my dog, Sissy, has heard that rain and she is curled up on my lap right now. Our show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson, Jesus Ambrosio, and Jordan Cowling are our associate producers. We get help from Casey O'Brien and Kristen Bennett. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, also known as DJW. Our theme song is by The Go Team, thanks to them and to their label, Memphis Industries. If you want to hear the latest about what we're up to, you can keep up with the show on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. We post all our interviews there. And I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Okay, says he finished. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.